Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, verses 21 through 25. And if it's okay, I'll start with verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We're continuing in the second chapter, which is a remarkable one in 1 John. Thank you, Elder Wayne, for reading verse 20. I was actually going to incorporate that into the sermon as well, so I'm especially glad you read it earlier. Now, before we come and hear Jesus speak to his church, bride, all the comforting words of gospel and mercy and kindness and building up of the saints, let's pray. Father, who is worthy to hear God speak to us? Who is worthy to have the word of God, Jesus Christ, among us, abiding in us in the power of the Holy Spirit? Who is worthy to preach the word of God from pulpits? Who is worthy to even have the written word of God? None of us are worthy, but you have been kind to us and given us all good things in Christ. Now feed us, Jesus, the bread of life. We pray in his holy name. Amen. So you might have noticed that the middle word of our sermon title today is lies. And even though lies and falsehood possess no actual conceptual reality ultimately in the mind of God, from which comes all concepts and truth and reality, it is nonetheless lies and falsehood the black hole or spiritual quasar in which we find ourselves living in the world daily bombarded with lies and falsehood. In this sense, it is the unreal world, and yet it still is a part of our existence. Lying and deceit is so much a part of our daily experience with the world that we could become, if we were not careful to walk very closely with God in Christ Jesus as his church, immune to it or careless about it or thoughtless, or come to the point where we're so insensitive that we just think that's the norm, when in fact that is really not true at all. All unregenerate people in the world do live in that situation because they have no other options until or unless the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the power of regeneration and brings them into Christ and his church. Now, the only way to avoid this horrible situation is to be sandwiched, if you will, in and by the love of God in Jesus Christ through saving faith in him. And the two pieces of this divine bread sandwich, if you will, that squish the lies that we have to face every day, that assail us, are Jesus Christ the truth, 
and Jesus Christ the life. Therefore, in that light, let's make it our goal this Sabbath day to believe that Christ is truth and life. We're looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. Title of the sermon, Truth Lies in Life. The doctrine, Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of truth and life. E-M-B-O-D-I-M-E-N-T. Now, this is what John 14, 6a means which Elder Wayne read as our call to worship today, when the same Apostle John, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, wrote this, quoting Jesus himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ does not deny the existence of propositional, doctrinal, theological, and or other types of objective truth of any nature, but he does insist, with all the other authors of the Bible, that for anything to be true or to be alive, it must be completely entailed in him, connected to him, directly traceable to him, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, with this exciting subject before us, you may have to put your thinking caps on a little bit more than normal today, but you're all capable, and I'll help you as best I can. Let's, to our soul's great benefit, believe that Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of truth and life. First, in him alone, we experience every other connected in him, verity and vitality. Verity is truth, vitality is life. Principle among these truths and life dimensions is the happy relationship we now have with the Holy Trinity, all three members of the Holy Trinity, through the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one and only mediator between a holy God and sinful men, 1 Timothy 2.5. So this God-man has caused this to happen. Indeed, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same Apostle John wrote this in verse 23b of our lesson for today. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So truth and life are arranged by God in a great hierarchy. And the Holy Trinity, of course, is at the top. The truth and life dimension of the body of persons constituting the elect and redeemed church of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth is connected also to the Holy Trinity through the human nature of the second person of that Trinity, Jesus Christ, the God-man. So it's through his human nature that we are directly connected to our great and glorious God. Christ is our Lord and our brother. Then, cascading down through the church to the earth are all other aspects of truth and life, and they arrange themselves in order of their relative importance, with theology still being the queen of the sciences. The science is just a word that means knowledge. It's been sort of hijacked today. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So theology is still the queen All of these truth and life experiences and doctrines and expressions then come to us in order of their relative importance with theological truths, of course, always taking precedence. But notice that all of these truths, whether they are empirical science or philosophy or theology or anything else that is actually true, from the greatest truths of the Holy Trinity, uncreated and necessary, of a nature of his own, three persons, 
all the way down to the smallest speck of actual reality that God created, are all related to our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing that's true or alive is not connected to him. And so, Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of truth and life. In him alone, we experience every other connected in him, verity and vitality. And apart from him, there is no creation, truth, or life. Now, this, of course, is the necessary corollary to our first and most important part of our doctrine here. If all creational truth and life emanates from our Lord Jesus Christ, and we know that it does from specific texts of Holy Scripture, such as John 1, 1 to 3, in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, then it follows that everything that is sinful in the world possesses no real existence at all. And that's a really interesting and important thing to keep in mind. Instead, sin and evil and wickedness is, if you will, a chaotic distortion of something that God originally created perfectly good, very good. And I would reference for you in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. No, sin is not an illusion, like some heresies have tried to say. It's not an illusion, but it is a privation of something that's real and positive, something that God actually did make. And this is where lying from our text today comes to the fore. And lying, of course, is something that uh, John is very hard on in this entire epistle of First John. Liars deliberately deny the truth, as per verse 22a of our lesson for today, where I quote John, who wrote, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So Christ himself becomes the absolute standard. Liars create nothing real through their falsehoods. Let's look together now at verses 21 through 25 of 1 John chapter 2 and comprehend why Christ is the touchstone, T-O-U-C-H-S-T-O-N, for all truth, lies, and life. Now, a touchstone, kind of an old-fashioned word, it's a criteria or standard by which judgment is made. We're looking at these verses 21 through 25, 1 John 2. Now, we include the word lies here not because lies have any relationship to the Son of God or the Father or the Holy Spirit. Obviously, they don't. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and Christ cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. But we include it because the fallen world directs all of its falsehoods at our glorious Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And because they can't see him, they direct them at us, those who are the representatives who are identified with Christ, who are baptized in him, who are clothed in his righteousness. It does this, the world does, whether it realizes it or not. So even for the world, the most important thing, person is Jesus Christ. And its most cognitive and most important dimension is all theology. doesn't even realize it, but it's true. That's why theology is the queen of the sciences, or at least one of the reasons. Now, the very fact that all the unregenerate, prevaricating, or lying world is united against Christ, his church, and his gospel is actually very powerful evidence that Christ is true 
and that our holy faith in him as Christians in the church is the one and only true religion. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that the world is not too concerned about any other religion or philosophy or outlook or perspective on life, but it is passionate in its hatred for this King Jesus who has asserted himself to be the glorious sovereign over all, which of course he is. So let us now consider together why Christ is the touchstone for all truth, lies, and life. First, because he is the sole access to divinity, S-O-L-E, soul only. Verses 21 through 23, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, in verse 21, the Apostle John, as a good pastor and under-shepherd of Christ, has so much confidence in God, in Jesus the Redeemer, and in his ministry in his church children, so much confidence that he, John, assumes that the Holy Spirit's anointing, which we read about in verse 20 and was glad that Elder Wayne read it earlier, referenced there, his anointing has thoroughly insulated and isolated all the regenerate children of God in the church from the most egregious and dangerous and fatal errors in the world doesn't mean that we're not still subject to certain mistakes and errors because we all are in a fallen world. But all the worst ones, we are not. It's a beautiful thing. When we send young people off to schools of whatever nature anymore or whatever level anymore, it could on the surface appear to be an extremely scary thing to do, throwing them to the wolves. But they have a shepherd who has insulated, shielded, and isolated them from the worst things. And those things attack them and just bounce off. Now, those who are not regenerate, not really in love with Christ, it's a totally different story altogether. They usually cave in. But not so for the children of God. The most dangerous lies of the world and its master Satan, they are protected from them. Does this mean we should be unwise in what we do with our young people? No, of course not. But does it mean we should trust our good and gracious God and not worry too much about it? Yeah. Just last week, we were studying a Ligonier video. Ken and Kim, Les and I were, and we saw the American Christianity, Dr. Godfrey, talking about the Puritan's view of post-millennialism. And in the 18th century, the deism that had come through. And to the Puritans, they didn't really get too worked up about it. They believed that God would just use that, incorporate that into his glorious overall plan. He would conquer it. The gospel would go forth and all the glorious promises of the kingdom and the growth of the church and the millennium and the wonders of the gospel would happen, which your pastor also believes. And I hope you do too. Because we don't need to worry about the things that the world does. Now, this is a very liberating situation for the true children of God. Extraordinarily liberating and freeing. Partly because we're not held responsible by God to delve into all the world's never-ending galaxy of falsehoods. 
I mean, if we were to do that, it's a black hole. Should we be aware of them? Yes. Should we expose them? Yes. Should we fight them? Yes. Should we destroy them? Yes. In the realms that God has given us to do it? Yes. But should we be absorbed in them or fixated on them? No. Because we have a glorious God who is sovereign. So keep these things in mind when you read verses like 21 through 23 of 1 John 2. Now, what's intriguing about verses 22 and 23, among other things, is the truth's total preoccupation with its solar plexus, its pole star, its absolute center, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as mentioned earlier, even our knowledge of God the Father comes through a conceptually prior knowledge of God the Son, the God-man, who unites us to the Father and the Holy Spirit as the Spirit anoints us with the regenerative power and grace of our salvation, by which then when we hear the gospel, we profess our faith, we grow, we're justified as soon as we're regenerate, we understand that, we grow in sanctifying grace and in glorification as well. There's no other standard for truth given anywhere than this one of the person of Jesus Christ, the King, the Savior, the Lord, and the Creator, the one through whom God created the whole world. And what's interesting, dears, you are the ones that are, are privy to this. The whole world is absorbed in it, doesn't even know it, but it is. And we'll talk a little more about that as we go on. Now, as John says in the middle text of verse 22, the entire false enterprise of all the liars of the world and the world system itself as the perennial churner outer of lies is some kind of fatal denial, some kind of fatal denial of our Lord Jesus Christ, our King and Head. Why Christ is the touchstone for all truth, lies, and life? Because he is the sole access to divinity, and because he is the internalization of gospel grace. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, this emphasis, twice mentioned in one verse about what we heard from the beginning, is a reference to Jesus Christ himself as he was revealed to us through the preaching of the gospel of grace, and the inward call of the Holy Spirit, which we call regeneration, where that blessed atonement comes, and the outward call of the church's pastor's preaching ministry that calls the saints and the world to Jesus Christ himself. That's what this hearing from the beginning is all about. Now, the end of verse 24 makes it clear that the message of the Son of God causes us to abide in the Son and the Father. And, of course, all of that is accomplished through the work of the Blessed Holy Spirit, who applies that glorious grace to us. The importance of abiding in the Son and the Father is supreme, and it involves two important practical dimensions. Very briefly, let me give them to you first. Those blessed souls who are in regenerative power, sealed by God in the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son, enjoy a permanent, uninterrupted abiding in the three members of the Holy Trinity. Now, having said that, secondly, the proof of the evidence of our calling and election being authentic 
is realized through our constant faith abiding in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the way objectively we're able to measure that in most normal circumstances is in covenant faithfulness or lack thereof in a faithful church where the gospel is preached, Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Now these two dynamics are not at all in conflict or at odds with one another. So, one, those who are in Christ abide and they always will. And two, they are still called upon by God to be abiding in the Son, the Father, and the Spirit by the grace of God. Why Christ is the touchstone for all truth, lies, and life. He is the sole access to divinity, the internalization of gospel grace. And finally, because he is the personification of eternal life, verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now, God's promise of eternal life is really a blessed and amazing thing. As far as I know, there's not another religion that even has the audacity to promise eternal life. But implicitly, every false gospel seeks to do that because we're created in the image of God and we want to live. It's a promise, though, of eternal life that is 100% incorporated in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life at all outside of Christ. The promise of the blessing of eternal life is one of the great evangelistic tools God has given us, his church. It really is. I think it's something of an underused tool, too. Jesus Christ boldly promises eternal life to anyone who will believe in him and eat his flesh and drink his blood. Receive the gospel, preaching. Receive the sacrament, life and covenant. He promises that. He promises eternal life. But there is no eternal life at all except that which is exclusively found in the second person of the blessed Holy Trinity. Now this wonderful truth and possession of eternal life, you should and must understand, is yours today. It's not a future promise. It's not a future dimension. Christ himself is eternal life. He doesn't come here and point to some treasure chest over there and say, that's eternal life. No, he is eternal life. Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life. He himself is eternal life. And that means that you who are in Christ today possess eternal life right now. In fact, on the authority of Scripture, I can tell you, you'll never die. You might say, yeah, I might die in the body. Yeah, you might. Maybe not. Who knows? Depends on when Jesus makes his final return, right? But it doesn't matter because we've already been raised in our souls and the promise of the resurrection of the body is ours too. And we are alive, eternally living right now, so long as we are in Christ Jesus and in his church, which is basically to say the same thing. But we don't hold this eternal life doctrine as a stale theological concept, not at all. Instead, we embrace it in the being and person of the second person of the Holy Trinity, Christ alone. 
Okay, let's do some pretty exciting application this morning and understand why Christ is the center of everything, especially for us in the redeemed church. I say that about the church, but really he's the center of everything for everyone, human beings and angels, whether these are elect or reprobate, fallen or elect angels. He's the center of everything. Now, this teaching is so important for all of us to understand. Please understand, contrary to what the world says, money, success, careers, education, family, the created world, government, politics, racism, sodomy, the environment, so-called social justice, sin, evil, fallen human beings, stars, galaxies, or anything else, are not at the epicenter of all things. Despite what the world wants us to think, none of that stuff is. Not any of it. Jesus Christ himself is in the middle of it all. And this will explain why everyone, redeemed souls and those yet under condemnation, are obsessed with the Lord Jesus Christ, either positively or negatively, whether they realize it or not. Let us now seek to more fully grasp why Christ is the center of everything, especially for us in the redeemed church. First, because all creation is entirely dependent on him. Okay, so we're going to talk a little about empirical science here. That's that science with usually the guys have the white robes on, looking through telescopes and microscopes. There are other, they've sort of taken over that word, but that word's much more general than that. Sometimes we wrongly imagine that empirical scientists actually know what it is that they're seeking to explain to us, and sometimes they do it quite pompously. All you have to do is watch a Nova show or two. It's pretty ridiculous. I was correlating the Nova myths with the old Greek and Roman myths, and there isn't a whole lot of difference between them. We'll talk a little more about that. Now, I'm not being hard on empirical science. God has created us to look at this stuff, to try to understand it, to do our best to put it to use, to glorify God in it, to recognize that he created it, etc., etc. And all of that is good. And empirical scientists do us a lot of good. I know we have some here, and we thank God for you. We're not here to beat you up. But epistemologically, or in other words, with regard to the foundations of knowledge itself, the very basic things that God gave us in our mind, in our concepts, in our ability to intuit anything that we see of a phenomenal nature, epistemologically, empirical scientists really don't know what they're beholding when they look through a microscope or a telescope. This might be one of the reasons why they can never figure out why they can't get to the smallest article or part of an atom. They think they get it, boom, there's more. Here's probably the reason as per Barclay or Leibniz or other idealist Christian theologians, it's probably the case that what they are beholding is actually probably a spiritual reality of some sort that God made, which appears to us as a physical reality. But we can't know, I can't know what this is. All I have is a thought in my mind about what that thing is. And we don't usually think this way, but I only say this because it's important for us to develop a healthy, moderated skepticism about all the world's claims, especially with empirical science. 
especially when they venture off into areas they don't know anything. Cosmology, typically, theology, philosophy. Now, I understand that some don't like to talk about these things because it's not comfortable. And it is true. It does create something of a skepticism. And I'm not talking about an absolute skepticism, but a moderated, humbling skepticism that causes us to recognize that we really don't know what we're looking at. Okay? We just don't. Keep that in mind. All of this theological, philosophical preface is really intended to prepare our minds for something much bigger, greater, and grander. Namely the fact that everything God created, he created through the Word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, even as John 1, 1-3 specifically, explicitly states. And this is why the world is completely stuck on Christ, and why they must exert all their efforts to extricate themselves from him, the one through whom they were created. And no matter what they do, even if seeking to deny his very existence, they nonetheless find themselves utterly consumed with him, whether they even realize it or not. Created in the image of God. But Lord willing, we're going to see where the sovereign and gracious Lord will turn to their advantage some of this, at least in the case of the elect among them. Why Christ is the center of everything, especially for us in the redeemed church? Because all creation is entirely dependent on him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, many myths are built on false foundations of knowledge, which obviously are not the best and highest species of knowledge, And like I intimated earlier, some of these myths are somewhat hilarious and ridiculous, usually high-blown and high-sounding, but just stupid. And you need to be careful about them, but not too careful. Just read the Greeks, the Romans, the moderns. It's all the same. It's just myths. It's one of the reasons Paul tells Timothy in the pastoral epistles over and over to pay no attention to foolish myths. That's what he's talking about. Ideas of creation, ideas of the world that just aren't true, aren't based in any objective truth whatsoever. It's just proud, arrogant, blundering stupidity based on whatever anybody can do. But there is a humility that we ought to have when we're dealing with these things. And the error that people make in the world is not so much that they can't really know what they're looking at when they look through a microscope or a telescope. We can't blame them for that. That's not their fault. The real mistake is a spiritual and a moral one whereby the obvious, the creator, is denied and idolatry is established. But there's, this is the same misstep that every one of us made when we were also trapped in sin as well. Did we not? And all of this is why, except for the incarnate word of God, get this now, revealed in the written word of God and proclaimed in the church's preached word of God, except for that, all of us are hopelessly lost in darkness and despair in a fallen, dead world. Jesus Christ really is the way, the truth, and the life. 
How do we know this? Well, ultimately, we know it through the Holy Spirit's revelation and illumination of our souls. Really, without that, we're not going to figure it out. We could study it forever and we'll never come up. We had to have the revelation of God and the illumination. Is there hope for us and for all other otherwise completely lost, dead sinners in the world? Yes. And all of it is found in the person of Jesus Christ, his blood atonement for sin, his glorious resurrection for our justification. All of it. That's what these texts are about here in 1 John 2. Let us embrace Christ by faith and in love, and in more boldness, too, understanding the world better than perhaps we ever did before. Beloved, truth, lies, and life are all part of our everyday experience. But Jesus Christ alone is truth and life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that fact, that Christ alone is truth and life. Thank you for your gracious, wonderful way with us, that you have never left us to our own devices. You've always given us everything we need. We do pray that we could help. Uh, be instrumental in seeing others liberated from the same bondage that we used to be in, believing lies and myths and foolish stories about the world and how it came about or where it's going. We thank you that you have never deceived us. You've always told us the truth. And Jesus Christ is the truth. And we thank you for him. We pray in his holy name. Amen.